Coming up, Cybercast Oregon, a podcast about the ins and outs of technology security, explored through personal stories, how-to guides, and expert advice. Today, we're taking a hard look at the privacy paradox and trying to understand what happens when we sign away our rights in exchange for use of technology. So pause before clicking that I agree button and stay with us. This is Cybercast Oregon on PRP. Are you a technology user? Chances are you've signed away data privacy rights. Most of us would say limiting others' access to our personal information is very important. But research claims it would take 76 hours a year to read all the user agreements we're offered. So who can blame us for skimming through those terms of service contracts? Just check the box, download the app, and move on, right? Maybe it's not so clean cut. Here's Cybercast Oregon host Kedma O. Oh, to walk us through the world of data privacy. Hi, my name is Kedma O, oh, and I am the director for the Small Business Development Center, and my role in Oregon is to support cybersecurity awareness. Digital privacy does indeed impact almost all of us, but it's something that usually happens on the fringes of our technology experiences. I'm joined now on the show by two experts to help flesh out what online privacy actually means and what really happens with the data we store online. Lewis Howell, founder and CEO of Huya, a startup devoted to mitigating cyber threats, as well as Selena Beckelman, Director of Engineering for Firefox Runtime at Mozilla. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here. So what I want to do is I want to begin first with Lewis. Can you just give us a little bit of background on your actual startup company and what you actually do to support businesses? And also, how did you get involved? Is it something you wanted to do as young as five years old? Yeah, totally. Yeah, so we've been around a couple of years now. I've been in IT and security, Fortune 10, Fortune 5000 for, you know, 15, 20 years now. And in my role, you boots on the ground, network security engineer, all the way across to CIO. And one thing that I realized was is that, you know, I kept throwing, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars at kind of this problem in the threat landscape around security, hardware devices and, and software. And... I was always having to go back and have conversations about why a breach occurred and uh, why um, we were, why an, an employee uh, was was able to click on a phishing email or something like that. And so I actually exited and, and started Huya, and Huya was designed around this idea of protecting the human, because the human endpoint was one that we were commonly missing. Uh, we just didn't have the tools or the software available to effectively. Um, uh, save us from ourselves to some degree. And so for me, it was more of kind of identifying that there was a real problem and uh, there was no real way to solve it. So that's kind of where who you came from. And, and, it, and also being kind of a security researcher, I realized that the tools that the hackers have at their disposal, these are basically, 
you know, one-click install type tools that they can target someone and, and collect a lot of personally identifiable and descriptive information about them to develop these targeted and premeditated crimes. And so I wanted to develop software that helped people protect themselves better um, and kind of be the watchful eyes that that we need on a day-in, day-out basis. So we're we're 100% focused on protecting humans uh, in the elements that they live in today. Wow. And one more question before we move on, just to hear from Selena. How did you get involved in this as far as your background? You know, it's kind of funny. I, I actually, um, I'm not a computer scientist by background. I, I actually have a history degree and an MBA, but uh, I've been messing around with computers since about 85, uh, Commodore 64. I just, I've always been able to kind of connect those dots and I kind of love it. I kind of really get into it. I have to be careful being a CEO not to kind of get down into the weeds, but I've just always had a passion for technology in general, kind of spun out of the dot-com era myself. And I really kind of dig how the internet works and how information flows and, and where it lives and where it goes. And it's something that just fascinates me and uh, I really enjoy. So I, it's kind of been since since a kid watching my father trying to get the printer to work, uh, the old line printer to work with the computer, I guess. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to turn it and would love to hear from Selena on just a little bit about your role. And I have to fully disclose, I do use Firefox. Nice. I, That's the right <laughs> browser to use. So could you share a little bit about your role and then how you evolved into it? Sure. Uh, so. I am director of runtime, as you said, which mostly has to do with what we call sort of the back end of the browser. It's this uh, system called Gecko. What that is, is an implementation of the web. It's sort of all of the standards that go into how web communication happens between the browser and websites on the internet. So it's, um, yeah, that includes like networking, security, JavaScript, all of these parts that go into making the web what it is today. And how I got into that. So I guess sort of like Lewis, I, I started out when I was a kid, just sort of screwing around with computers. My uncle was a ham radio op operator. So was my grandfather actually. And they, they put together computers, you know, for my family. I really wasn't that into it. I really liked making banners and uh, playing Dig Dug. <laughs> that was really the extent of it until I got to college. And once I got to college, um, some friends of mine in the dorms, uh, they showed me the web for the first time. And it completely blew my mind. And I was a chemistry major at the time. Uh, it took me a couple of years to figure out that I wanted to do anything with computer science. But after a couple of years, I ended up switching and just wow. stayed with it. Yeah. Wow. Well, we're going to go through a few questions because I know I am so curious to hear from both of you on some of the things going on, especially around privacy. So my first question is really simply, what is real the real definition of online privacy and who should have access to that data? So what does that mean from our perspective? So working for Mozilla, this is a core part of our mission. And our, our belief about this is that we should all be able to choose, you know, with both clarity and confidence, what information we share with which companies, and then understanding the trade-offs that occur when we do that. So right now, you know, we really lack meaningful choice online. Privacy policies, as you mentioned in the, in the opening, you know, 76 hours, they're too hard to read. We don't really understand what information we're sharing when and opting out is really not often on the menu. And there was a, there was a Pew Research study a couple of years ago that found that 
91% of adults agreed that customers have lost control of how their personal information is collected and used by companies. And the truth about that is, is that we mostly don't know exactly what's collected, who has access to that data, or, or even what's collected about us at any point in time. Wow, that's kind of scary because it's, it's really open-ended and, and leaves us a little vulnerable. So, Lewis, on that topic, have you dealt with situations where privacy came into play with some of the clients you advise? And how did you manage that? Yeah, well, it, you know, it's a huge concern for everybody. Just to kind of, you know, reiterate. I mean, what we share and where we share that information, I think we're all asking the same questions. I think that we've all been using a lot of services for a long time now, which we retrieve a lot of value for. But I don't think we we realize what we were giving away and the rights that we were giving up as well. And you know, I think that that's a really important conversation that we're starting to have as a culture and as a society. And it's going to be a huge uh, fundamental shift. I think as we saw with, with Equifax, I don't think any of us really knew. I didn't know all the information as a data warehouse that they had as a data broker to some degree that they had access to. And so a lot of the clients that we work with are kind of in that same boat. And they're saying, hey, listen, I want to get my arms wrapped back around it. And one of the things they oftentimes ask me is, is there any way to get out of the data economy? Is there any way that I can actually pull myself out? I mean, kind of the right to be forgotten kind of thing, an idea, but is there anything that I can do now to actually start reversing the cycle? And that's a lot of what we look at. But one thing that we look at is kind of the, what we call open source intelligence. So the information that we willfully expose every day on different types of channels, whether it be Facebook or LinkedIn or, or you name it, on Strava even. So that's where we really focus is making sure that you're not oversharing information that could lead to targeted and premeditated crimes that are extremely timely. So there are different data sets that we look at. So there's that open source intelligence, the information that I'm putting out there or that's available via public record. Then there's that information that I'm sharing silently that probably most of us realize we don't know that we're sharing behavioral data, purchase data or purchase history or things like that. So that's another data set. That's a data set that if we work with our clients around that idea, it's all in kind of what was mentioned earlier about, you know, what we're willing to give up to receive this application or receive this functionality, right? What do we give up when we use Uber kind of thing? And so that's an, that's an area that we focus. I'm not sure if I answered your question. No, absolutely you did. And I don't know if this leads to, and I, for either of you, does this have anything to do with cookies or not? Of course, my six-year-old would say cookies in a different format, but I, <laughs> I, I think we're, we're thinking about it from a security perspective. And the reason I bring it up is I know on my system, I have everything secured and sometimes I'll go on a site and they will not allow me to continue until I agree to check off the cookies. Right. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about that for uh, the listeners? And is it necessary to log in and, and allow that tracking to happen? Well, cookies can get used in a few different ways. Just at its most basic, they're just little pieces of information that a website is recording related to your activity. And there's a difference between first party and third party. So first party would be the website that you're actually connecting to that you know that you're connected to. And third party would be something like an advertising network that um, is not hosted on 
the service that you're you're actually connecting to. And basically, like the website can use that information to figure out what you were doing from one page load to the next to the next page load. And if if they weren't there, then they wouldn't necessarily be able to figure it out. So sometimes they're they're quite benign, but you know, like they're helping you logged in, be logged in, and then stay stay logged in while you shop or make comments or something on a site. But another use of those is to determine which kind of ads that a site is going to show to you. And that can be based on information that the site has that you explicitly gave to it. Like you type something into Facebook, you know, so you're actually like giving them that information. But it also can be things that you didn't necessarily know you were disclosing, like your geographic location, guesses about what your gender is, you know, any, any other kind of incidental information that you didn't necessarily realize that you were giving. Well, that brings up a good point. I mean, so what if I was online and I was searching for clothing? Would they be able to track my size, what kind of color I like, what stores I'm going to? How detailed are we talking about that that they're having access to? It really depends on what you do. So if you select a particular size as you're shopping, yes. They can store and record that, uh, record that information. That might not necessarily be in a cookie, though, right? So let's say you log in to one of these websites and then you start selecting different things. Yes, they can keep track of that data. Um, and then the question becomes, should they? <laughs> and how long will they keep that data for? And that's the area that we get into where you don't necessarily know. And it would be really helpful if websites, A, disclose that, and B, that we had more consistent policies, probably, and, and principles that websites used and businesses of any kind use to, to keep that consistent and understandable for a regular user. Thank you. And Lewis, I'm, I'm just going to go into sort of my experience. I, a lot of times, see that list of you need to check the box before you move forward. And I very rarely will review everything, right? Full disclosure. As a result of that, what is typically found in these give your son away kind of experiences, what are they actually communicating in these long contracts that I'm just honestly just agreeing to so I can get to the website? You know, it's a really good question, you know, and I, and I try to actually go through them and try to identify, you know, what, what's happening and, you know, my rights and what rights I'm giving away and things like that. If you're, we're talking about privacy policies. And one of the things that that we've leaned into, we actually started working with a Widens team in uh, Washington about was actually thinking about creating privacy policies or standardizing privacy policies that were more simplistic and very easy for us to understand what data they have access to and the rights they have to that data. Because oftentimes we do lose our rights to that information. And looking at Facebook and Instagram and things like that, that happens to be the case. When you try to go to retrieve that information or reuse that data, that's where rights start to get questioned again. And, you know, one of the things through our research that we've noticed, and I've seen a couple articles lately on this, is that you do kind of have the first party, the second party, and the third parties that start to leverage and use this data. And, you know, one thing that we know with uh, certain dating apps is, is that you might install Bumble or something like that, it integrates with Facebook, and all of a sudden you made your birthday private, but actually Bumble was able to pull that data, put it into their application to make it public. Mm. And so this is a type of reuse of information. When we think about privacy policies, there's we're actually we're trusting Facebook to, to one degree, but then they're trusting another party. 
So these privacy policies are, it, it's kind of a web um, now, this huge ecosystem of information that's being shared. It is very, 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 very difficult to determine the rights and where that data lives and, and, and things like that. So you're not the only one. I think we're all in the same boat with the privacy policies. They were written by lawyers for lawyers, and uh, it's extremely difficult to understand and intentionally because um, no one actually wants to have the question, have the conversation yet about the severity of the problem around privacy. Mm. Well, that sort of prompts me on two questions. One is, what is our government doing to really combat this challenge? And on the other side of that fence is, are there lobbyists that are trying to persuade the government maybe not to be as involved? I'm just curious to know from a legislative perspective what's happening because many of us don't really understand it. This is for either of you as a question. Yeah, you know, I can, I can jump in and just kind of add um, kind of the experience that I had. When we were first talking about the privacy policies and thinking about introducing legislation that would actually standardize a privacy policy and the way to communicate that out that all of us could understand, uh, we ran into a really big roadblock, and that was that it's never going to happen, um, <laughs> or at least it's not going to happen right now. And the barrier to that was was Google. I mean, they have so much influence and power right now, and I believe their whole thing their whole thing around don't be evil back in the day, right? And I still use uh, Gmail and things like that, but I think we're starting to question now what does that really mean? Because they have access to a data set that we've never ever known. I'd like no one's ever had access to this type of data, this behavioral data about people this intelligence. So that was a brick wall that we hit. But one thing I'm really excited about here in Oregon is that um, Congressman Blumenhauer and talking about smart cities and uh, about some of the things that are happening in Portland, started asking the question, what does it mean and how is this going to impact the citizens of this state, right? And so starting to build in privacy and privacy rules and laws and security early into the system around smart cities. And I really, really appreciated that. And we need to see that, that acknowledgement that that needs to happen more and more. And I'm hoping to see Oregon really start to lean in and kind of lead the charge on that and realizing that this is really a big deal and privacy is very important. So I feel very optimistic about what Oregon is doing today. And I hopefully we're going to lead the nation on that. Wow. And, and I think also we can look to Europe. There's just for the last month or so, there's been a series of meetings, EU countries talking about e-privacy initiatives, and they've made a series of recommendations that go fairly far in terms of needing to disclose in plain language what data that you're collecting and what the impact on a user's privacy that data collection might have. And I think that's like, you know, just just the, the beginning, but I also think that enforcement actions in the EU are also sort of a model for what we might be able to accomplish. So yeah, I've, I've heard similar things from my friends that work in policy of, you know, just a brick wall of like, we're not going to be able to move this anytime soon. But I think we can see that it has been effective in other countries. Wow. So our privacy is constantly being compromised in many instances with our consent. Stay tuned. Next, we're going to dive a little deeper and look at the ethics, logic, and realities of trading digital privacy for technology experiences. 
Support for Cybercast Oregon comes from Mount Hood Community College Small Business Development Center, working with entrepreneurs to create, grow, and protect successful businesses. Learn more at mhcc.edu slash sbdc. I am your host, Kedma O, oh, and I oversee our cybersecurity statewide initiative for the Small Business Development Centers in Oregon. And today's topic is data privacy. We've all done it downloaded an app or program without really understanding what kind of personal information we're trading away. Sure, the targeted ads and overall sense of being watch is annoying, but should we care? And are we actually being surveilled by the technology we use? Joining us to help us sort through the implications of all of this is Selena Deckelman from Mozilla's Firefox Runtime Team and Greg Strohmeyer, software engineer at Tosni. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So, Greg, we would love to learn a little bit about you and your role right now with the company, and then, of course, how you actually managed to get there. Sure. Uh, so, Tosni is a startup here in Portland, spun out of a bigger company, Galois. And its primary focus is to have better security, better privacy for users and for other technology businesses. So we're really trying to empower the developers of these different companies to make the right decisions, really so they can let us make the right decisions and they don't even have to think about it. (laughs) Security is often like one of really hard things to do. And if you're already thinking about other parts of your business, and your technology stack, then it's not really going to take a priority sometimes. So I got involved with technology, I, I think, very similarly to some of the other guests on this, where I was the home IT person growing up, you know, <laughs> installing America Online from those discs from like cereal boxes and stuff. And then I did pursue it at PSU as a computer engineer, and I'm just excited to be able to work with technology and work to help protect people's privacy. Fantastic. Well, I am so excited to have both of you on. And I have a few thoughts because in our last segment, we talked about some of the challenges that may come about with online privacy concerns. And yet I'm curious to know if there's any benefit. So if I bring you into my world, every day I get to spend time with businesses and all they're trying to do is find ways to better position themselves in the market. So they're asking me, you know, how do I segment the market? You know, my customers, how do I figure out what, you know, uh, their purchasing patterns are? So I'm curious to know, are there positive aspects to gathering that data through ads or sales experiences for companies I'm assuming they're they're possibly purchasing it. So, you know, and is there a story that you could share behind that? So I'm going to go to Greg first and I'd love to get your feedback. Yeah, so I can sort of give a more personal example. You know, if I were to Google movie showtimes, it's probably going to show me showtimes for the Portland area. And I didn't I didn't type in 
movie showtimes for Portland, but it already knew that. So it, it was able to sort of track that and make that decision. And even as somebody that's involved in technology, I am able to be aware of that. I, and I can still accept that. And I think that goes back to some of the things like uh, that were addressed earlier. It's like about making that choice, being able to make that choice as an informed decision. And then when, when you talk about it in, in more of like a business case, those are absolutely like effective and useful things to know. I think it can sort of surprise the end user if they're not made aware of that. So you can get some really beneficial information from it, but is there going to be sort of like a backlash from your users if they didn't necessarily overtly agree to it? Good point. Selena? Yeah, so I can <clears throat> speak directly about what we use uh, information like this for Firefox. Uh, so one of the things that we do is ship particular versions of Firefox to people that are customized by their country that they're in. So this can either be set manually by the user or it might just be the region that they're from, which you can kind of determine from their geographic information from this thing called an IP address. So we do offer them, you know, if they come to a website to download something, we say, you probably want the German version of this site if you are, in fact, in Germany. <laughs> and, you know, for the most part, users like that. A situation where users don't like it as much is if they're using Netflix, they're traveling for business, and they're in a country <laughs> where the DRM, the, the digital rights management software, decides that they shouldn't be able to see that movie in that particular country. And that's when they start uh, taking evasive action <laughs> using <laughs> different types of technology to, to try to get around that. So, yeah, so it, it gets used in business all the time either to, you know, for us, it's uh, helping the user pick the right version. In the case of DRM, it's actually enforcing law. That's excellent. And I love to travel a lot around the world. And I'm curious to know, this is sort of my million dollar question. <laughs> Do you actually believe that there's like surveillance on us every day, not only by companies like Facebook or Yahoo or Google, but maybe the government? And I hate to feel paranoid, but I I'd be curious to know what, what your thoughts are. So Selena, you first. Well, let me put my tinfoil hat on. <laughs> and, but, That's a nice tinfoil hat. It's really nice. It's gorgeous. Yeah. It's totally going to keep the aliens out. Um, well, you know, honestly, like I probably wouldn't totally think about the problem that way. I, I think about it more in terms of the intended and unintended negative consequences of massive data collection without regulation. You know, the fact that we have all of these, there's sort of this... I was thinking deep web, but that's that's not really what it is. It's like deep databases of all of this information that we actually don't know. We don't know anything really about what's in there, who is trading that information, and then ultimately what they're using it for. We get glimpses of it. So I think the current investigation into Russian influence in the American elections is an example where we're finding out novel uses for this data, both in terms of consulting companies that collect data and they're not even in the consulting companies, not even in the U.S., and they're sharing data about U.S. Uh, consumers and also the things that are happening for ad targeting services like Facebook and Twitter. So, um, you know, I, I, I try to think about it is in terms of like, what are the incentives 
to do the right thing with that user data, um, which in, in my world, that's giving a user a choice, an explicit choice about whether or not their data gets used by these different services. But uh, ultimately, you know, we, we need to think about it in terms of policies, in terms of law, in terms of the principles that all of the different companies that are collecting our data, what the principles that they have and that they're employing. Excellent. Yeah, so I think that's super important. And I know of some pretty clear examples where the tinfoil hat is not at all an unreasonable response. Um, I think uh, there was a, an example, DreamHost, a web hosting company, was subpoenaed by the government, the Department of Justice, I believe, for revealing, they wanted to reveal the visitors to a certain website. It was called Disrupt J20. It was the inauguration day. And so it was just sort of like an activist site. It was like, how can we sort of get involved in, you know, uh, protest in different ways, whether it's because I believe in climate change or because, uh, you know, I believe in these certain human rights. And the Department of Justice requested users for that actually just visited the site. So there is a clear example of just even visitors to a site having their surveillance um, being a significant part of like their life. Um, I think even there's some Oregon-specific ones where uh, the Black Lives Matter here in Oregon had their Twitter account surveilled by law enforcement. And so there was response from that. And so it's a, it's a very real thing. And I think people can sort of downplay it and like, oh, well, you know, there's that's just kind of something that happens, but it's a very real thing. So it's important. Wow. Thank you. You know, and as I think about it, because we're talking about social media and digital privacy, but I think about also us going to maybe the hospital. Like yesterday, I had to take my son to the ER and they're asking for a lot of sensitive data. If I go to the bank and I want to start my business and I'm opening up an account, they're asking for a lot of sensitive data. Should we feel any concern for handing over that data? And what are the repercussions if that data gets compromised? Like, can I sue the hospital? <laughs> can I say, wait a minute, you had my data and it was compromised and maybe my diagnosis went out and I didn't want it to go out. Yeah. And so I have irreparable damage. What's my recourse? So, Selena? Yeah, so I think you know, going back to that idea of regulation, you know, when it comes to hospitals, banks, the government, there are regulations and laws about how that data is collected, how it's shared and how it's used. And you'll often now get like a little piece of paper with not too much legalese, something that, you know, won't take you 76 hours to read, maybe maybe just five minutes, but it kind of tells you what you're agreeing to in terms of sharing your data. So I think there, there's, there's a bit more assurance about what's going to happen with the information that you share. Uh, but I think a really important thing about it is that it's also audited. So part of these regulations, it's, it's also the PCI compliance around credit card industry is another example of this, where there's actually audits that are conducted by a third party that comes in and says, you know, are you performing up to the standard that we expect and that's been laid out in these regulations? So I think there, again, like it, it's a little, there's a little more, there's more guardrails, basically. Whereas like when you're looking at the web, 
there's really not a lot. And I think the Equifax, which we brought up in an earlier segment, is an example of where there just is not nearly enough scrutiny and there's not nearly enough auditing. And we really don't know what's going on there. So I think that's an area where you would where you would want to have a lot more. Uh, uh, you would want to have a little more regulation or any regulation at all <laughs> put in place. Yeah, to have a look at it. Yeah, I totally agree with what's been said. PCI compliance is something I've I've dealt with uh, before. Once there are policies in place and there's clear guidelines and there's clear auditing, and then even the next step after that, there's clear consequences for people that don't follow through or when there's breaches or other security uh, events that happen, having consequences can really make a difference too. And, and I think we're sort of seeing where that's lacking, uh, the policy, the auditing, and the consequences with something like the Equifax, where we just see that they messed up pretty big and we don't see them, you know, taking and responsibility. Keep out finding more. Right? Keep finding more. It's just this <laughs> awful rabbit hole yeah. that just gets worse and worse. And, and yeah. it's, it's tricky, too, with things like Equifax and, and personal information where you sign up for a, a service like Facebook and then your, your account gets leaked and your, your passwords are out there. You can change your password, but if with, with Equifax, your social security number is out there. You can't change your social security number, or at least it's very difficult. So there needs to be a, a lot of work to be done on that, that side of it. Well, I want to keep it positive. <laughs> so I want to switch gears. So when I think about users and I have three boys and we're, they're constantly downloading apps, right? It's free apps, programs, games. Tell me a little bit about data mining. Is it like a hidden price tag or how can we play into that? Sure. Uh, so <laughs> I'm not sure how positive. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I guess I guess what I what I wanted to say about that, there, there's two parts of it. One is if if you're not paying for it, probably the product in some way. Um, that phrase comes to mind. However, that, you know, just because you pay for a service, that doesn't necessarily mean your data isn't also being mined. So I think it comes back to like looking at the company, like what has the company said about how they're going to use your data? Have they made any agreements with you? So with Mozilla and Firefox, we really try to be very clear. We have these privacy policies. We have data collection policies. We have this program called data stewardship. And anytime we add additional data collection to any of our services or products, a data steward who's been trained, they go and they look at that data. They think about the implications of what collecting that data might mean. And they really look out for things like personal information that might ultimately be able to uniquely identify a user. And they try to make sure that we, we just never collect that. And in certain situations where we can't avoid collecting uh, personal information, we find ways of getting rid of that data as soon as we possibly can. And we make that very clear. We publish all those policies on our website. And it's, it's written not in legalese, but in, you know, mostly in English, but we translate it to other languages, uh, written, written in, in languages that users can understand. Yeah, I think that uh, it is tough for me also to go positive with this. Um, <laughs> I think it's uh, just sort of the nature of working in security. We we really hear a lot of the negatives. Um, Our job is like worst case scenario. Right, yeah. It's play. planning for the yeah. worst, yeah. <laughs> so in terms of data mining and just collecting all that information, you know, it, it does kind of feel like it is getting a little bit worse 
where ISPs can now sell your browser history, your your uh, your online activities. And so, you know, one of the ways to circumvent that or address that is to get something called a virtual private network or a VPN. And there's a lot of talk that's like, well, you're now uh, sort of protecting your own data from your ISPs, but now the VPN companies themselves, they have that information. And that's true. And I think the way to think about it is somebody described it as you're just moving your trust. Mm -hmm. So whereas you're your ISPs, maybe you don't trust them that much. Maybe there's not a lot to gain from it. Um, whereas you can do a little bit more research uh, and select the VPN company that works for you, that where you've gone to their site and they have their explicit privacy policies uh, like Mozilla. So I think that's an important thing to do is to be able to do your own research and find out and be able to make those choices. And one thing I'll add is that Privacy research has been around for a long time into technologies that can enable us to have truly anonymous or just like more private experiences online. And I think the renewed interest in this, you know, in public life right now has fueled some interesting efforts. So something that, you know, I've I've been working with the technology for a while is this technology called Tor. Um, it's two parts, really, the Tor browser and the Tor network. Um, and it's something that that really anyone can download and try on on most platforms, most operating systems. And basically, what that does is it enables both the anti censorship and a, a more anonymous experience for users. And it does that by setting up special network connections out there that can hide your traffic in a lot of other network traffic online. So there's a lot of technical stuff in there, but it's. I think we're going to see more technologies like this and more accessible technology like this going forward because there's just been so much public interest and a lot of investment in it recently. So uh, one more question. This is so fascinating. I am curious to know, maybe from a political, even at an international level, what are the wider implications of data being gathered and used to curate over our experiences? And is U.S. leading the charge in terms of the security awareness or are we like way behind <laughs> in terms of what other countries are doing? Yeah, I think uh, I think Selena um, called it out where Europe is actually doing some pretty good stuff. Uh, the U.S. might actually be falling behind, at least in uh, making sure the policies reflect what what the protections around people uh, they have their uh GDPR, which I never remember what it stands for, but it's a pretty strong policy uh, around protecting people's data. Yeah, and the right to be forgotten, you know, the ability for someone who, you know, this is this is uh, more of an EU, uh, it is only an EU law, but just the ability to say, like, if, if something you don't want to be online, like if you want to remove it and it's associated with you, that you can actually request that and then the company is legally required to to remove it. So things like that, yeah, we're we're not that far ahead. <laughs> we're behind in the US and but there's uh there are quite a few advocacy organizations, the EFF. Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, Center for um, Democracy and Internet. There's a bunch of organizations that are pushing for this lobbying, and I and I think that we're going to see just increasing interest in this in the coming years. 
Thank you. A takeaway at this point in the show, it's time to rethink our reflex to side away our personal lives and store data online. After the break, we'll help you understand practical steps to upgrade your digital security. Support for Cybercast Oregon comes from Mount Hood Community College, SBDC, and CyberOregon.com, your one stop for all your cybersecurity small business needs. Welcome back. I am Kedma O, your host on Cybercast Oregon, and I lead our statewide initiative for cybersecurity for our 19 small business development centers. If you were with us earlier in the show, you've learned about the scope and impact of allowing our digital trails to be tracked and how vulnerable our online data may be. Now, let's figure out what to do about it. Joining us with solutions and suggestions, Greg Strohmeyer, software engineer at Tosney, and Lewis Howell, founder of Hua. Welcome back. Thanks so much. Great to be here. So, I'm committed to making this a positive segment, no matter what you all say. We have to find a way. So the first thing I want to ask is, should we rethink the pact we've made that digital connection equates success and that this comes at the cost of selling our personal details? So, Lewis, if you want to start. You know, it's, it's pretty complicated now, right? I mean, I believe that uh, we all rely on the kind of the social and digital connections that we have, both personally and professionally now. And, you know, I think that um, there's a lot of good that comes out of the connections that we've made and the sharing of knowledge and information. And I think we can't forget that. I think it promotes innovation. It promotes conversations. It promotes it promotes access to information and knowledge that people in different countries have never had before. And I think we can't forget how important that is to um, humanity uh, when we think about global warming and things like that. So I think that it, there's, it's net good. There's no doubt about that. But I think that we all have to be aware of uh, the unintended consequences of oversharing information, whether we're silently oversharing that information via our searches or our search history or things like that or the things that we buy all the way across to the information that we're exposing publicly on Facebook, things like that. I think that we just need to find and be able to strike that balance. And it, and it's difficult at times. There's no doubt about it. But we receive a lot from these connections that we have. But uh, we, just, we just need to be extremely mindful about some of, the, some of the consequences, both good and bad. Excellent. Yeah, I agree. I think... You know, the Internet is supposed to be sort of a democratization of, of information and even some of the, you know, like the social networks. You know, we I remember I was personally sort of uh, unimpressed with Twitter. You know, I can uh, share, you know, what I had for breakfast in 140 characters, but it also enabled things like the Arab Spring and it has a lot of social power. And so I, I agree. I think there's really a lot of benefits from this. And I think it just means that we got to sort of get better at using it and creating it and legislating it and, and so forth. 
Well, let's shift gears because I think that I would love to hear from both of you practical steps to increase security. And I will fully disclose, I use a VPN. And when Greg said last segment, well, you've just transferred your trust from one to another, I go, oh, my goodness. He's right. How does that help me now? Because I, too, like everyone else listening, am trying to find ways to secure my data and my traffic. So Greg, could you first lead us and maybe walk us through, I don't know, maybe five steps or however you want, but real tangible steps we could take today to really help secure where we are? Yeah, absolutely. So first, I'm sorry if I incited some panic in you. I think a VPN is an incredible tool. And, you know, there's a good chance that you've got a great VPN service and, you know, there's almost nothing to worry about. And so, and another thing I would say is what a bummer it is that it's on us as end users that we have to like do this work. And, you know, and that's the trade-off, you know, the classic trade-off between security and convenience. And I just feel like, you know, a lot of technology companies can be doing better. So if I can throw out just uh, off the top of my head, some, some really good things. So a VPN is really great, a virtual private network, and it's, I would say, especially important, uh, almost mandatory. If you're ever in one of those coffee shop or airport situations where there's actually not a password to get onto the Wi-Fi, then it's, you can essentially think of it as your traffic is just totally exposed and being broadcast. So I think that's an important thing. And, and while, you know, yes, it, it the good ones are probably going to cost some money. I think it's a worthwhile investment. And then, you know, there's some other real classic things that you may have heard, but it's always important to to repeat. Looking for that HTTPS in the address bar, making sure that it's a secure connection when you're browsing online. And I think, you know, technology companies, even small businesses around the area uh, and all over, it used to be sort of a prohibitive thing to do. But uh, nowadays, with tools like uh, Let's Encrypt, that is a really accessible thing to enable for the business and for the users. So I think a lot of people benefit from that. Can you explain what Let's Encrypt is? Because I would presume a lot of people, including myself, don't know what that is. Yeah, so Let's Encrypt is a service where it allows you to enable HTTPS for your own website. So if you had your own website and you're you're selling something or you have a service of some kind and you just spun up a website real quick and, and you know, web hosting or technology is not your primary thing, you can use this service called Let's Encrypt and it gives you free HTTPS certificates, which allows your users to connect to it securely. Excellent. Uh, Lewis, what about you? Anything to add on to that? You know, I think it's all really good stuff. I mean, you know, the mentioning of, of Tor, I think that's that's an excellent one as well as the VPNs. Um, you know, and I think I think more than anything, it's, it's developing an understanding of kind of what your goal in this. You know, v, VPNs are good at, at providing security and confidentiality and some anonymity if you introduce in Tor, but understanding why you're doing it. And um, because, you know, the threat landscape, a lot of the attacks that we're seeing through our research are coming through channels that are very public. And they're coming over email. You know, it's phishing scams, it's fraud, it's identity theft, and things like that. 
And so we really try to lean in um, in some of those dimensions that we interact with every day, day in and day out. And so we look for proactive and preventative measures that we believe are longer lasting to some degree. The data that people are going to capture about us, you know, so I don't always use a VPN. You know, and that, that may sound kind of crazy, but, I mean, sometimes I do. It depends. It's very situational. If I'm in an airport or somewhere that, that I'm not comfortable or if I'm just jumping on the Wi-Fi, I do. But, um, you know, it's very situational. And so, you know, one thing that we look at is making sure that you're not oversharing personally identifiable information, descriptive data, and what we call inferential data. So that inf information that people can use, that intelligence that people can use to develop those targeted attacks that I talked about earlier. So that's very, very important. Also, actually working with our kids and our family, right? So the, in a very real way to let them know what some of the risks are about sharing certain types of information, because what we found is nowadays it goes from the digital world to a physical world very, very fast. So uh, whether it be bullying uh, or other things that are happening within our schools now, uh, this has turned into something that as parents we need to be very mindful about how our kids are engaging uh, with these devices and this information and becoming good digital citizens, something that we're leaning heavily into at Huya. So I think that we focus in that dimension, and we think it's very, very important. Excellent. I'm going to bring you to actually everyone to a real story that just happened, I think, a week ago. So bear with me, and then I'm going to ask a question, because I was actually shocked it was a couple that were flying, and I don't know if anyone heard of this story because it was all over Twitter, and the husband fell asleep, and he had done all the security measures he needed, including there was no way to access his phone without his finger, right? It was protecting. So while he was sleeping, she used his finger to open up his phone. Well, the end of the story was they were taken off because she assaulted him because uh, she learned that he was essentially meeting other people. So my point <laughs> in that is if we take that to another <clears throat> level and we think about facial recognition as a software, how will facial recognition software impact our online privacy and is this something we can protect ourselves with? Having said that, I will tell you that there, ha there was a case where twins were able to use facial software and the facial software was not able to detect the, uh, the twins. So I I'm just fascinated by this. So I'm going to start with Greg. Yeah, it's true. You know, there was a lot of uh, concern when, um, you know, the fingerprint sensors and touch ID were included in uh, the newer devices. And I think Apple did pretty good at making sure that the fingerprint was sort of protected and it never leaves the device. And, you know, you're not going to get into this weird situation. And with biometrics, with face recognition, you, you do start to run into these issues. And, you know, similar to what I mentioned before, one of the tricks with these that uh, a lot of people haven't sort of fully recognizes that you can't change your fingerprint. You can't, you know, change your face like you can change a password. So if, if something gets leaked online or, or, or uh, you know, otherwise can be impersonated, then you're kind of stuck in this situation. Uh, but I, I think we're just starting to see how these 
different authentication methods that are based on sort of who you are or what you have, you know, as, as part of your like sort of physical identity. Uh, we're just starting to dig into how that uh, affects people. Um, so it'll be pretty interesting. And I think sometimes people are pretty excited about making it happen. And in those cases, security can kind of take a backseat. So it's kind of a dangerous thing, too. Lewis, any other thoughts on that one? You know, I, again, I kind of get back to, you know, I think that it gets down to convenience for us, right? We want to make it really, really easy to be able to log in, authenticate into systems. And I think that, you know, kind of to Greg's point, I think that, you know, passwords are not that bad. And, you know, when you think about password complexity and length and all that kind of stuff, I recommend people use phrases, right? And you can use spaces. So a sentence is a really good password. I think from, you know, a very broad level, there are huge privacy concerns around using different types of biometrics for authentication. You know, and I think that that kind of gets back to some of the conversations that have been had around smart cities and things like that. The unintended consequence is what does someone do with that data when they hack in and grab that data set? And I think that these are some of the questions that we need to ask ourselves because just being able to get into someone's device using their fingers is one thing. But also, it's what, how is that information used potentially by criminals, right, to create an environment or a situation that puts you at risk, puts you somewhere where you never were, right, kind of thing. So I think that that's kind of where I go in, in general is thinking about, you know, how can this information be used? And so that's, that's all I have to ask. Yeah, that's excellent. And I think we have time for one more question because I am on Twitter and I am on LinkedIn. Do I go ahead and change my privacy settings? I will tell you with Facebook, I've changed it because unless you are friends with me, you can't actually see my updates. And I love that because it's the only thing I keep personal in my life, <laughs> to be honest. And you can't actually uh, request a an invite unless you're friends with a friend. So can you walk us through ways for us to make a decision on privacy settings especially because, you know, most of us are on social media. And are there any negative implications if we choose to go that route? So I'm going to start with Greg. Yeah, I would almost always recommend just doing a sort of a privacy audit of your own social networks and your, your own social services. Uh, it, it can be overwhelming to, to go into Facebook and you can almost uh, decide your sharing level for each specific action, and that can be sort of overwhelming, um, and then have to do that again for Twitter and then again for LinkedIn. But hopefully you only have to do it the once. And I think it's still a, a very worthwhile thing to do. The other side of this is those services can, it's, it's totally up to them whether they even expose that option in the first place. You know, you could end up going to a different service where they say, do you want us to publicly disclose your email to everyone or just to everyone like once at a, once a month or, you know, like the choices themselves can sort of feel like uh, empty because it's like, oh, I could have this really bad thing or this sort of bad thing. Uh, I thought we were going to end in a positive. So I'm going to leave that to that's, Lewis that's to all do Lewis. that. It's all, it's all Lewis, Lewis now. take us home and make it positive. <laughs> You know, I think that, you know, I think all the things that Greg recommended are exactly right. I think, you know, doing a privacy audit and just kind of being very mindful of what you're sharing, where you're sharing, and what that information looks like. I like what you're doing. That's a great idea, uh, making sure that you're kind of vetting who it is that you're friends with. 
And you know, I, I like to say that you know, in general, a lot of these a lot of these services really don't want to overexpose you or your information. So I tend to kind of lean that way and be fairly optimistic about that in general. So, you know, and I think what we're going to see in, in the trend now is to put us at the forefront. I believe that that's starting to happen. I believe the conversations are there. So that's a very positive thing to think about. I just think that we need to keep leaning in and ensuring that people are doing the right thing in general. And because uh, I think we all agree on what that is. So. Thank you. Well, that's all we have for today at Cybercast Oregon. Thank you, Selena and Greg and Lewis. If you missed part of the episode or want to listen again, you can find the show on PRP.FM and iTunes under Cybercast Oregon. We'll be back on the 15th of December. In the meantime, stay in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, have a great weekend and a great holiday. Cybercast Oregon is produced by Nastasia Voisin and hosted by Kedma O. Oh. Tech support and editing by Daniel Lin. Music by Alistair Lee. This episode is made possible by Mount Hood Community College, where they work every day to open opportunities for entrepreneurs, innovators, and inventors. Learn more at mhcc.edu slash sbdc. Our show is produced in the studios of Portland Radio Project, Check out prp.fm for more information. You can find previous episodes, extra content, and previews by following us. Stay in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Cybercast Oregon. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.